0: Chapter Five, Part One of the Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Arnie Horton. The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World by Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy. Chapter Five. Victory of Arminius over the Roman legions under Varus, AD 9, Part 1. de factum ut imperium quod in litore oceane non steterat in ripa reni fluminis stare, Flores. To a truly illustrious Frenchman, whose reverses as a minister can never obscure his achievements, in the world of letters we are indebted for the most profound and most eloquent estimate that we possess of the importance of the germanic element in european civilization and of the extent to which the human race is indebted to those brave warriors who long were the unconquered antagonists and finally became the conquerors of imperial rome twenty-three eventful years have passed away since m delivered from the chair of modern history at paris his course of lectures in the history of civilization in europe during those years the spirit of earnest inquiry into the germs and early developments of existing institutions has become more and more active and universal and the merited celebrity of monsieur Guizot's work has proportionately increased its admirable analysis of the complex political and social organizations of which the modern civilized world is made up must have led thousands to trace with keener interest the great crises of times past by which the characteristics of the present were determined the narrative of one of these great crises of the epoch a.d nine when germany took up arms for her independence against roman invasion has for us this special attraction that it forms part of our own national history had arminius been supine or unsuccessful our germanic ancestors would have been enslaved or exterminated in their original seats along the eider and the elbe this island would never have borne the name of england and we this great english nation whose race and language are now overrunning the earth from one end of it to the other, Arnold's lectures on modern history would have been utterly cut off from existence. Arnold may indeed go too far in holding that we are wholly unconnected in race with the Romans and Britons who inhabited this country before the coming over of the Saxons, that, nationally speaking, the history of Caesar's invasion has no more to do with us than the natural history of the animals which then inhabited our forests. There seems ample evidence to prove that the Romanized Celts, whom our Teutonic forefathers found here, influenced materially the character of our nation. But the mainstream of our people was and is Germanic. Our language alone decisively proves this. Arminius is far more truly one of our national heroes than Caractacus, and it was our own primeval fatherland that the brave German rescued when he slaughtered the Roman legions eighteen centuries ago in the marshy glens between the Lippe and the Ems. see Post remarks on the relationship between the Cherusci and the English, dark and disheartening even to heroic spirits must have seemed the prospects of Germany when Arminius planned the general rising of his countrymen against Rome. Half the land was occupied by Roman garrisons, and what was worse, many of the Germans seemed patiently acquiescent in their state of bondage. The braver portion, whose patriotism could be relied on, was ill-armed and undisciplined, while the enemy's troops consisted of veterans in the highest state of equipment and training. Familiarized with victory and commanded by officers of proved skill and valor, the resources of Rome seemed boundless. Her tenacity of purpose was believed to be invincible. There was no hope of foreign sympathy or aid. For the self-governing powers that had filled the Old World had bent one after another before the rising power of Rome, and had vanished. The earth seemed left devoid of independent nations. Rank The German chieftain knew well the gigantic power of the oppressor. Arminius was no rude savage, fighting out of mere animal instinct or in ignorance of the might of his adversary. He was familiar with the Roman language and civilization. He had served in the Roman armies. He had been admitted to the Roman citizenship and raised to the dignity of the equestrian order. It was part of the subtle policy of Rome to confer rank and privileges on the youth of the leading families in the nations which she wished to enslave. Among other young German chieftains, Arminius and his brother, who were the heads of the noblest house in the tribe of the Cherusci, had been selected as fit objects for the exercise of this insidious system. Roman refinements and dignities succeeded in denationalizing the brother who assumed the Roman name of Flavius and adhered to rome throughout all her wars against his country arminius remained unbought by honors or wealth uncorrupted by refinement or luxury he aspired to and obtained from roman enmity a higher title that ever could have been given him by roman favor it is in the page of rome's greatest historian that his name has come down to us with the proud addition of liberator hod dubi Germaniae, tacitus annals two eighty eight often must the young chieftain while meditating the exploit which has thus immortalized him have anxiously revolved in his mind the fate of the many great men who had been crushed in the attempt which he was about to renew the attempt to stay the chariot wheels of triumphant rome could he hope to succeed where hannibal and mithridates had perished what had been the doom of bieniathus and what warning against vain valour was written on the desolate site where numantia once had flourished nor was a caution wanting in scenes nearer home and in more recent times the gauls had fruitlessly struggled for eight years against caesar and the valiant vercingetorix who in the last year of the war had roused all his countrymen to insurrection who had cut off roman detachments and brought caesar himself to the extreme of peril at elysia he too had finally succumbed had been led captive in caesar's triumph and had then been butchered in cold blood in a roman dungeon it was true that rome was no longer the great military republic which for so many ages had shattered the kingdoms of the world her system of government was changed and after a century of revolution and civil war she had placed herself under the despotism of a single ruler. But the discipline of her troops was yet unimpaired, and her warlike spirit seemed unabated. The first wars of the empire had been signalized by conquests as valuable as any gain by the republic in a corresponding period. It is a great fallacy. Though apparently sanctioned by great authorities to suppose that the foreign policy pursued by Augustus was pacific, he certainly recommended such a policy to his successors either from timidity or from jealousy of their fame outshining his own incertum metu an per Tacitus annals 1, 11 but he himself until Arminius broke his spirit had followed a very different course besides his spanish wars his generals in a series of principally aggressive campaigns had extended the roman frontier from the alps to the danube and had reduced into subjection the large and important countries that now form the territories of all austria south of that river and of east switzerland lower wurtemberg bavaria the waltellin and the tyrol while the progress of the roman arms thus pressed the germans from the south still more formidable inroads had been made by the imperial legions in the west roman armies moving from the province of gaul established a chain of fortresses along the right as well as the left bank of the rhine and in a series of victorious campaigns advanced their eagles as far as the elbe which now seemed added to the list of vassal rivers to the nile the rhine the rhone the danube the tagus the seine and many more that acknowledged the supremacy of the tiber roman fleets also sailing from the harbors of gaul along the german coasts and up the estuaries cooperated with the land forces of the empire and seemed to display even more decisively than her armies her overwhelming superiority over the rude germanic tribes throughout the territory thus invaded the romans had with their usual military skill established chains of fortified posts and a powerful army of occupation was kept on foot ready to move instantly on any spot where a popular outbreak might be attempted vast however and admirably organized as the fabric of roman power appeared on the frontiers and in the provinces there was rottenness at the core. In Rome's unceasing hostilities with foreign foes, and still more in her long series of desolating civil wars, the free middle classes of Italy had almost wholly disappeared. Above the position which they had occupied, an oligarchy of wealth had reared itself. Beneath that position a degraded mass of poverty and misery was fermenting. Slaves the chance sweepings of every conquered country shoals of africans sardinians asiatics illyrians and others made up the bulk of the population of the italian peninsula the foulest profligacy of manners was general in all ranks in universal weariness of revolution and civil war and in consciousness of being too debased for self-government the nation had submitted itself to the absolute authority of augustus adulation was now the chief function the senate and the gifts of genius and accomplishments of art were devoted to the elaboration of eloquently false panegyrics upon the prince and his favorite courtiers with bitter indignation must the german chieftain have beheld all this and contrasted with it the rough worth of his own countrymen their bravery their fidelity to their word their manly independence of spirit, their love of their national free institutions, and their loathing of every pollution and meanness. Above all, he must have thought of the domestic virtues that hallowed a German home, of the respect there shown to the female character, and of the pure affection by which that respect was repaid. His soul must have burned within him at the contemplation of such a race yielding to these debased italians still to persuade the germans to combine in spite of their frequent feuds among themselves in one sudden outbreak against rome to keep the scheme concealed from the romans until the hour for action had arrived and then without possessing a single walled town without military stores without training to teach his insurgent countrymen to defeat veteran armies and storm fortifications seemed so perilous an enterprise, that probably Arminius would have receded from it, had not a stronger feeling even than patriotism urged him on. Among the Germans of high rank who had most readily submitted to the invaders, and became zealous partisans of Roman authority, was a chieftain named Segestes. His daughter, Thusnelda, was preeminent among the noble maidens of Germany arminius had sought her hand in marriage but segestes who probably discerned the young chief's disaffection to rome forbade his suit and strove to preclude all communication between him and his daughter thosnelda however sympathized far more with the heroic spirit of her lover than with the time-serving policy of her father an elopement baffled the precautions of segestes who disappointed in his hope of preventing the marriage, accused Arminius before the Roman governor of having carried off his daughter and of planning treason against Rome. Thus assailed and dreading to see his bride torn from him by the officials of the foreign oppressor, Arminius delayed no longer, but bent all his energies to organize and execute a general insurrection of the great mass of his countrymen. Who hitherto had submitted in sullen inertness to the Roman dominion. A change of governors had recently taken place, which, while it materially favoured the ultimate success of the insurgents, served, by the immediate aggravation of the Roman oppressions which it produced, to make the native population more universally eager to take arms. Tiberius, who was afterwards emperor, had lately been recalled from the command in Germany and sent into pannonia to put down a dangerous revolt which had broken out against the romans in that province the german patriots were thus delivered from the stern supervision of one of the most auspicious of mankind and were also relieved from having to contend the, against the high military talents of a veteran commander who thoroughly understood their national character and the nature of the country which he himself had principally subdued in the room of Tiberius, Augustus sent into Germany Quintilius Varus, who had lately returned from the proconsulate of Syria. Varus was a true representative of the higher classes of the Romans, among whom a general taste for literature, a keen susceptibility to all intellectual gratifications, a minute acquaintance with the principles and practice of their own national jurisprudence, a careful training in the schools of the rhetoricians, and a fondness for either partaking in or watching the intellectual strife of forensic oratory had become generally diffused, without, however, having humanized the old Roman spirit of cruel indifference for human feelings and human sufferings, and without acting as the least check on unprincipled avarice and ambition or on habitual and gross profligacy accustomed to govern the depraved and debased natives of syria a country where courage in man and virtue in woman had for centuries been unknown varus thought that he might gratify his licentious and rapacious passions with equal impunity among the high-minded sons and pure-spirited daughters of germany when the general of an army sets the example of outrages of this description he is soon faithfully imitated by his officers and surpassed by his still more brutal soldiery the romans now habitually indulged in those violations of the sanctity of the domestic shrine and those insults upon honor and modesty by which far less gallant spirits than those of our teutonic ancestors had often been maddened into insurrection i cannot forbear quoting macaulay's beautiful lines where he describes how similar outrages in the early times of rome goaded the plebeians to rise against the patricians heap heavier still the fetters far closer still the great patient as sheep we yield us up unto your cruel hate but by the shades beneath us and by the gods above add not unto your cruel hate your still more cruel love then leave the poor plebeian his single tie to life the sweet sweet love of daughter of sister and of wife the gentle speech the balm for all that his vexed soul endures the kiss in which he half forgets even such a yoke as yours still let the maiden's beauty swell the father's breast with pride still let the bridegroom's arms enfold an unpolluted bride spare us the inexpiable wrong the unutterable shame that turns the coward's heart to steal the sluggard's blood to flame lest when our latest hope is fled ye taste of our despair and learn by proof in some wild hour how much the wretched dare arminius found among the other german chiefs many who sympathized with him in his indignation at their country's debasement and many whom private wrongs had stung yet more deeply there was little difficulty in collecting bold leaders for an attack on the oppressors and little fear of the population not rising readily at those leaders call but to declare open war against rome and to encounter varus's army in a pitched battle would have been merely rushing upon certain destruction varus had three legions under him a force which after allowing for detachments cannot be estimated at less than fourteen thousand roman infantry he also had eight or nine hundred roman cavalry and at least an equal number of horse and foot sent from the allied states or raised among those provincials who had not received the roman franchise end of chapter five part one